Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and you are listening to the Soul Stories podcast, an extension of Soul Stories. At Soul Stories, we create spaces for risk-taking, vulnerability, and critical thought. On this season of the podcast, we speak to change makers about their personal journeys and how they are making an impact in their communities. Patricia Alley is a certified coach, mentor, and author who has had to navigate childhood trauma, mental illness, and addiction. Earlier in her 20s, she joined the army and was deployed to Iraq. It was there she was faced with her own pain and destructive habits. In this episode, she recounts how humility, vigilance, and a myriad of supports saved her life. She now works to serve those on similar paths. Her resilience is remarkable and truly shows the power of the human spirit to overcome. Here's our conversation. All right. Hi, Patricia. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. The first question we ask, and we're shifting this up a little bit from previous episode, is what kind of change are you creating in the world? Well, I think it really boils down to changing the world and creating as I go one conversation at a time. Okay. And um, I would love to do it on a global scale, you know, try to, you know, magnify the message of, of what I'm trying to do and uh, help people with mental illness, suffering from trauma and addiction. Okay. And so what does that look like for you? What's that message? Are you helping people with mental illness? Well, I, I've written a book. I'm almost done with it. It's probably going to come out in the fall called Becoming a Seeker. And it's about what I call the trifecta, which is the mental illness, trauma, you know, sufferers, and uh, those trying to recover from addiction or alcoholism. Okay. And um, I think it's, it's going to help those who are suffering from the trifecta. The book? Yes. And are there any services you're providing in addition to the book or beyond it? Or is the primary idea getting that message out? Well, I want to create a workbook and support groups around it, like book studies. But for now, I am a coach, a certified coach, and I mentor people. I don't really work for uh, people on a cost basis. I just like to mentor people and coach people as I go. It's just part of my passion. So I haven't like turned it into profit. I just love it. I just do it as much as I can. You try to uh, just like the people you're around, the people who are seeking out what you have to offer, just providing them advice, listening to their stories. I'm so curious what that process is. Well, it looks like basically, yes, hearing their stories and seeing where they're having some pitfalls, some, some, limiting uh, problems and issues, especially when it comes to the trifecta, those three in one issues. Okay. Basically uh, suffering from all of that and not being able to function in the world and be in the world as, as productive as you want to be, or, you know, have to be, that's up, up to the social norms and trying to make a living and things like that. It's just so difficult. And some people suffer behind closed doors. Yeah. I imagine many, many people suffer behind closed doors. Um, so what kind of change have you seen or what kind of change are you like hoping to see? Well, 
A lot of people I've worked with have gotten sober and I have some success stories from that, from this, just a spiritual mentor type of volunteer work. And anybody I come into contact with that has those issues out of the support groups I attend, the recovery groups I attend, I have 12 years sober. So it's just one of those things that, thank you, yeah. that I naturally do to keep my seat in that support group is like giving it away. Hmm. So what does that, what does giving it away mean? Basically spending my time like an hour a week with somebody who has asked me to work with them um, and, and phone calls, even if it's in the middle of the night, if they need to talk and it's an emergency, you know, I say it, it is, it is something I have. I have a life. I have two little girls and a husband, but if it is absolutely emergency, an emergency and you're climbing the walls, I think somebody needs to be there. Yeah. And I want to reach out my hand for somebody that needs it. Sounds like you, you're creating somewhat of a support, like safety net for people in a way. Yeah, I, I'd say so. Um, and then getting them to the point where they can stand on their own two feet, stand in their truth and stand in, in recovery on their own, not be so dependent on me. And I think that I worked with uh, countless people. Uh, the success rate is not always that great because the addiction is pretty strong. Sickness can be stronger than recovery. And if they're not steeped in like therapy, potentially psychiatry with medication, uh, and that kind of support, like a 12 step group and things like that, like celebrate recovery through churches, that, that kind of thing, then it's like united we stand, divided we fall. Yeah. So if they're on their own and they, they're isolated and they're thinking they're the only one suffering this way, it's really difficult to recover. And, uh, just believing there's, you know, one person really helps, but if they're really far gone and they don't, they're at the point where they don't really recovery, the success rate can be low. Yeah. I work with kids who've been through trauma and abuse. Um, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, and we have psychiatrists, we have therapists, we have um, youth treatment counselors, we have treatment supervisors, we have a gamut of adults to help with recovery and the, the, the healing process. And if those kids don't opt into that healing process, it's all for naught. Mm. And um, it's, it's a struggle. Like they, they're so deep in their own pain and suffering to help lift them out, you know, it takes a village, which is kind of reminds me of what you're saying. Yeah. It takes a team. I agree. And if they're, um, used to that pain being such like a companion for so long, the fear, the anger, uh, the worry, the anxiety, it's like losing that would be losing a piece of yourself and they don't know what, what is left. Who am I without this? Right. It's part of their identity. It's their, it's where they're comfortable. Right. Yeah. And, and I'm asking them to try on like a, a new pair of shoes and wear that in. And they're like, this is all I know. I don't want that new pair of shoes. Right. It doesn't, I'm not going to break it in. It doesn't feel comfortable. Right. I'd rather wear these other shoes. I know what they feel like. Right. Wow. So in, in that village, what's your, what do you, what do you see as your role? Well, somebody who has suffered from the trifecta myself and found recovery, 
Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, you know, 12 years sober and, and that's, you know, it's not where my recovery ended. It had just begun because I was dealing with one of the three of the trifecta. Okay. And can you remind me of the trifecta one the, more time? Yes. The trifecta is mental illness, yep. addiction or alcoholism okay. and, and suffering and reeling from either past trauma or current. Okay. And as somebody who has recovered, I just want to share that message. And so, uh, having that firsthand experience and Mm -hmm. maybe not the exact experience as somebody else when it comes to their exact mental illness or their exact type of trauma or their exact even addiction. My, you know, my bread and butter was alcohol. Yeah. And if they, if, if they look for the commonalities instead of the differences, then we can be really successful. Mm. If they find connection to your story. Right. That I have experience. They're not looking at me like I'm just another member of their team, like a mental health professional, right. like removed from it. I'm like a comrade in arms. Which I think is really important because then they can see that there's somebody on the other end that, that change is possible. Right. That rickety bridge, uh, is more solid than they think. Yeah. That over the chasm of, of just experiencing their pain and walking through it. So you play kind of a role model, kind of comrade in arms, as you said, role. Yeah. I'd I'd like to think so. That's amazing. That's a, yeah, that's really cool. It's, it's such an interesting way to like look at things because I think in our culture, we often talk about like top down, like it's like, mm. I have these talents that will help you with this thing and you can access these talents. And you're like, no, I'm just, I'm one of you. I'm with you. I'm here. I'm just here to guide you and be with you. Right. Like, I think it should be like more like an inverted pyramid, you know, where it's like all of that trickles down to maybe some sort of leadership at the end, but it's like what we all have decided. And it's, it's, it's difficult to do that when so many people that are in power, um, love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a whole nother addiction. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) Addicted to power. Um, so let's, let's bring it back for a second. Okay. What's, uh, what's your story? Where, how did you get here? Okay. Where did it start? Well, I, I started probably, uh, I, I, I was abused for many years and then I grew up with a skewed view of what a family is, went to foster care for a little bit, came back really angry mm-hmm. when I found out, when I came back to my mom, found out that a f- family unit can look different than this dysfunction. And then, so I, I was so upset. I was so angry inside. And then I took that anger, you know, worked with it, stuffed it down, couldn't deal with it, survived. And then turned 17 and started just, I let loose. I stopped going to school. Uh, you know, I was a sophomore or no, I was a junior. Stopped going. I did not go to my junior year at all and started using drugs and doing whatever to ease the pain on the inside of just being me, the trauma, everything. So that's when it all started for me. I didn't know where to go. I ended up kind of on the verge of homelessness. So I joined the army (laughs) and I was going to initially join the Navy, but they weren't going to give me the best kind of job. And I wanted the best job I could get. And 
it's called military occupational specialty. So MOS. Okay. And I ended up being in communications. We ended up deploying to Iraq just to give you a brief synopsis. Yeah. What is that? I, I got drunk on guard duty. There was, uh, not any liquor stores in Iraq. So it was, it was probably a bathtub brew. Somebody had made some sort of whiskey. Yeah. And, uh, a friend that was a driver. I was a driver for the first sergeant, which is just an enlisted, another enlisted person in charge. Okay. So you're in Iraq. I'm in Iraq. And you're in your MOS. What's your role at that point? I, I was a driver in Iraq. Okay. So driving around anybody. Yes. yes. And there was a lot of explosions, a lot of things going on. I was fortunate not to get injured. Okay. Uh, some of the, some of my friends got injured, injured pretty bad. Um, and you're driving around like what Humvees or something? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. A Humvee, uh, cargo Humvee. So it didn't have like an upper armor thing. It didn't have a hard shell on top. It just had canvasy looking stuff. And it was a Humvee that looked like baby, basically a Jeep with canvas on top. Wow. And low protection. Yeah. We, we put some mesh around it, like chicken wire, basically mesh just in case there are any <laughs> Mazel Tov cocktails thrown in, you know, the, the, the bottles filled with fuel and, yeah. you know, lit on fire with some sort of t-shirt or paper inside of it and thrown. And then it just lights up. What's we the chicken didn't wire do? <laughs> stop that supposedly <laughs> from getting into the back of the Humvee. And it was, it was just an ironic thing because in the Humvee, a lot of it was a mental game for me because I had body bags. I had the body bags just in case we needed them. They were for like fallen troops or something. Fallen. Yes. And we would deliver the mail. We would have to search for IEDs, which are, you know, in, improvised explosive devices. And you just never know. They would put it in some damned animals that would look like roadkill or you just never knew. And it was it was uh, urban warfare to the point where you just didn't know who was safe and who was not. So that really played with my mind, especially coming from the traumatic background I came from where there was domestic violence and there was sexual abuse. And then uh, not being able to partake in my addictions to ease and escape <laughs> from the pain right. and the fear. And I also had identity theft committed against me so I had like $3,000 gone from my bank account. It While was frozen. In While I was in Iraq, I was also in the middle of, of a divorce because I got married at 20. And Some, what, what year is this? This is 2003. Okay. So I ended up saying, screw this. I'm, you know, if somebody gets any, any, uh, anything to drink around here, I'm definitely partaking. <laughs> yeah. And there's too much yeah, bullshit it's just, happening. There's just too me. much to deal with. Yeah. You know, for one, you know, 23 year old girl <laughs> shouldn't have gotten married anyway. And, um, basically I had guard duty, which was, I was supposed to climb a ladder and be at the front gate, the front of our forward operating base where the, the people could get in, you know, more so there than anywhere. And it was the top of a building. And I decided to go there drunk. I had my, my first several shifts. And then after that, somebody had something to drink and I, I chugged it and thought I could act normal. Yeah. But I had been function. I had been removed from so many things while I was in the military that not only did I get a 
a buzz on right away. I just was sloppy drunk. Just immediately. Um, yeah, just, I mean, because the way I drank and chugged it, you know, like it was a baby sucking from a bottle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Waiting for that moment. Yeah. It was like I found my true love yet again. You know, my, my God was that liquor that yeah. anything I could drink and shove in my, in my body to change the way I felt. I ended up getting, uh, up to the, up the, uh, ladder. I had a loaded weapon, had, you know, other rounds on me, which is the bullets and, uh, had all my gear was wearing a helmet. It, they call it a K-pot and, um, uh, just heavy gear trying trying to get up with my weapon trying to get up this this ladder and totally drunk i don't know how i did it i was say i can barely ride a bike when i feel yeah, that way right. <laughs> yeah and so i made it uh we sat on chairs uh on top of this building it was like two story building and i had asked the person on the person that was on guard duty with me it was another it was another man uh, it was just me and this guy and i said please keep me awake you know in my drunken stupor i said please keep me awake and he said sure well we both fell asleep was he drinking too no he was just he was just fell asleep cuz there's nobody to talk to on the four, four hour guard shift yeah he was just and tired. it was in the middle of the night uh, it was like 2 a.m. Uh, by the time this happened and the sergeant of the guard, the person in charge came and found us. Um, she put the light on me first off and I couldn't, I couldn't act normal. And she said, are you drunk? And I just started bawling. <laughs> I was like, I am caught. And this is the army. What, what in the world they took me down to, they got me down off the top of the building, took me to the physician's assistant that was there, the medics, that's what they were called, the medics. And they wanted to see if I was poisoned because this was a bathtub brew. Oh, yeah. They wanted to see if, I should have played that out. Come to <laughs> yeah. yeah, this no, was just in my food, back. it was in my drink, it was in my canteen, I don't know what I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> but that's not what happened. What happened was, I started crying. I said, I'm in so much trouble. I held my head so low the next few days and they, they had caught me. And uh, my true self at the time showed my alcoholism, the disease, dis-ease of alcoholism uh, showed I couldn't hide it anymore. If somebody came with a drink, I was going to drink. It was automatic. Yeah. Regardless of what I had going on. And I got court-martialed, which is basically a military trial. And they sent me to Kuwait in handcuffs with, with, it was kind of, now that I look at it, I wasn't some hardened criminal, but I had two armed guards with me and I was in handcuffs and they took me in a C-130, which is a, a big plane that goes straight up and really freaks you out. And that's where the people jump from when they're, when they're jumping to deploy, Okay, you know, above from above. It's not a gradual lift. It's just like, no, it's, yeah. And I was like, this is crazy. And so, I mean, everything, all the implications of everything was hitting me. It was just was hitting me so hard. And they sent us to Kuwait. Um, we t went to Kuwait and I was in jail there. There was, you know, no way to get out. There was, oh, there was some, some different details I did around there. Like I did some, 
collecting trash or something like that while the military police or what they call the MPs would be watching me. I ended up serving my time, even though the people that were in there with me kept trying to talk to me, but I was the only girl there. Yeah. And I... I somehow was able to talk to one of them while we were at a cigarette break because I was a smoker. And come to find out, they had done some horrendous stuff. And I was like, I just wanted to drink. <laughs> what am I doing here? And so horrific stuff like uh, carjacking some Iraqis and home invasions and things like that. I'm Are like, they all Americans? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. So, I mean, the enemy sometimes is from within. Yeah. You know, and, um, some people that were, are, you know, dishonorable, like, like what I did was dishonorable and, um, went back to my unit. There was a long time till I hung my head high, got out of the military. So you're after that, you, you were able to stay in the military. I had to, we were in Iraq still. They shipped me back from Kuwait to Iraq. And they didn't discharge you or anything? No, not right away. I had I had some time left to my enlistment, which is the time I needed to be in there. And you finished that out? I finished it. And after the people, the people that had gotten caught drinking, I wasn't the only one. Other people were having a tough time being at war. Yeah. And other people had found some sort of bathtub gin as well. They, they got slaps on the wrist, but I was the first one to get caught. Uh, and I was a you female. Were, you were made an example. I was. Uh, I was up on the cross, definitely. And the battalion commander was a female, and she was sleeping below me that night on guard duty. No way. So she she took some offense to that. She took it personal. And, of course, I mean, of course. And I was the first one to get caught female. How do you think female played into it? Well, I think we we are it's a good old boy network in the army just automatically. And I think we have as females, as women, we have a difficult time showing that we deserve leadership. We deserve things of that nature. It's like a woman has to work a little bit harder or if not double yeah, to get into, especially a combat arms battalion. Mm -hmm. So, um, combat arms basically meaning all the weaponry and things like that. And we would explode ordnance, which was basically exploding Iraqi weapons and all that. So there was always explosions going on. And anyway, that's a, that's an aside. But she just took offense to that because it was hard for her to probably get to where she was at. And then, you know, personal offense to the fact that she was sleeping below us. And you're supposed to be protecting her. Yes, and protecting the front gate. But the front gate was not safe that night. Yeah. Wow. So took that experience and to heart and a very shameful spot for me. I imagine. And um, I ended up trying to drink it away after I got back, after I got back to Texas. What year is that? T- 2004. Okay. So just a year after. Yeah. I got out of the military. I'm 24 years old. I turned 25. I'm still drinking, trying to maintain, you know, some sort of J-O-B and uh, not really working that much job to job and drinking a lot. Really painful spot. And I ended up seeking support because somebody told me, have you ever thought about seeking support in recovery, some sort of recovery group? 
Yeah. And I, you know, I, I walked into Celebrate Recovery, which is a church-based recovery group. You could be suffering from anything, you know, addiction to gambling or addiction to relationships, addiction to um, different types of things. And then I... Anything getting in the way of your life. Right. Right. And then I, you know, through that, eventually sought other recovery groups, other spiritual mentors, and through the process of whatever they told me to do, if they had told me to shave my head, put fuel on my head and light a match, I would have done it because I was <laughs> in so much pain. Yeah. I had the, that gift of desperation on my side. And uh, I was so, I was so just scared. Scared of losing, like we said, losing that pain that was my companion for so long, even though it hurt me. It's your livelihood. It was all I knew. So what's that shift? The what? What's the shift from I'm in pain, this is all I know, to I'm, I'm actually desperate. I need something different. Right. I think it took place when... I knew I had I had known all of all there was to know about the party life. Mm. I had known I had known being so drunk and getting taken advantage of. I had known, you know, driving and and drunk. I had known sneaking out from a baby shower to drink in the car. I had known all those things and I just, you know, it was so painful. The pain got so great. I was either going to die by way of some sort of cocktail of drugs and alcohol, or I was either going to either going to take my life, go to jail. Yeah. Or I was going to get help. And I I decided I wanted to live. So I was sitting there. What makes you decide you want to live? Well, I was sitting there, you know, listening to Bob Marley and the whalers one night saying, saying, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. Sitting there rocking myself in the fetal position, trying to stay sober and realizing I can't do this on my own and I have no idea what it looks like to do it in any other way, but I have heard that it's possible and I have heard from other people, thank God, who had blazed the trail ahead of me that they got sober and they were living a contented life and they had some sort of sparkle in their eyes, you know, little they could laugh without the barbs of pain in the background Mm. and uh, all I could do was just laugh now cry later one of those scenarios and so it was always that painful spot of like if I'm not laughing and having a good time and inebriated then I'm in pain and suffering until it stopped working for me yeah it completely stopped I was tearing my beer or an angry drunk and nobody wanted to party with me anymore the good times are gone. Yeah. So I think it took the last person leaving and me completely being absolutely alone and trying to. By leave. last person leaving, you mean like your social network, your friends, your family kind of thing? Right. Right. They didn't want to sink with the ship. I was going down hard. Yeah. So it was, it was just one of those moments where I was like, I am alone, absolutely alone. It felt so scary. Cause I was so used to keeping people around any, you know, the trifecta for me was booze, drugs, and boys. That yeah. was my holy trinity of what I did to make it. And then when I got, when my, the last boyfriend broke up with me, cause I said, I think I want to get sober. And he was like, well, F that I'm not going to get sober. 
Yeah. Um, you know, cause he was, he was just in the beginning of his addiction and uh, I had probation cause I had gotten caught by the law and the civilian law, you know, yeah. and I decided I want to try to get sober. Wow. That's a really amazing like story of recovery. Thank you. Yeah. And so what did you find, um, helped you? What, what helped you in those moments to get sober? What were your, what were some tools or some like pivotal, pivotal moments or experiences or people that, that helped you move in that direction? Hmm. Well, I met a woman through a friend who, um, I, I ended up meeting her in person and she, she was a, you know, she had been a former stripper. She had gone through like pretty much the whole trifecta, everything that I had gone through times 10. And there was no story that I could tell that was beyond anything she'd experienced. And she was, I think, almost like 15 or 16 years sober. Mm. And basically everything she said was just, it rang so true. And it was like she was telling my story of my pain, even though we had gone through some different scenarios and some different circumstances. Um, you know, she was no longer a stripper. She was sober. And she had been a dancer for a while and done it sober. So through that process of just working with her and being mentored by her and being told to pray in the morning and pray at night. And in the morning I said, please keep me sober. And at night, if I was sober that day, I said, thank you. And that's the only prayer I had for a long time. Wow. That's the only thing I could say. That's the only, like, that's that's as far as you could think, basically, is just, like, focusing on fighting this monster. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted some, I sought so much to, to change the way I felt inside with something outside of myself. Yeah. So I, I went from drinking alcohol to drinking energy drinks all the time and trying to stay sober, but vibrating off my chair and detoxing <laughs> yeah. in the support group rooms, you know? <laughs> so it was definitely an experience. And I would walk into the room and later she told me she's going to sit next to me. Isn't she? Oh, cause she, I would just, I was just detoxing and <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So you find this role model. This seems is the, the role model that it sounds like you were trying to be, that you are now being for people, you find this for yourself. And that's like the first shift that you're like, that's possible. And then is it support groups? Is it a therapist? Is it yoga? Like what, what happens after that? Oh, definitely all of the above. It was, it was, it took, you know, that spirituality connecting to some sort of higher power. Yeah. It took, you know, the prayer in the morning, the prayer at night. So that's number one, first and foremost, took that support group. Like you said, it takes a team and it took that spiritual mentor leading me through the support group and, you know, the books we would study and just doing what she said. And then also going to see a therapist and there are free resources out there. I had to find free resources like people going through um, their degree programs and looking for uh, hours where they needed to intern and be a therapist. I found some of those people. I I worked with somebody through um, self-pay and I also found a, a psychiatrist um, that was recommended to me and just started trying to face, face it all mm -hmm. and recover. And you're going after every resource you can find at this point. Right. 
Right. I, I wanted to live. And, and if I was going to live, the only thing that was going to work was a life that was just as good as the good times partying. Yeah. I wasn't going to stick around unless I found something that was a sufficient replacement. And what was that? That was the laughter that I saw. Uh, like I said, not, not coupled with pain in the end. That was the people with clear eyes and clear heads and you know, I met, I met a guy who, who was trying to get, he was sober. He had nine months, you know, ahead of me and he had a breathalyzer in his car and he was passing with flying colors. So it was great. He could drive around and it was just the, those friends I found that fellowship I found was amazing. Yeah. And it was a lot of people trying to get sober around the same time. Some of us didn't make it, but me and that guy with the breathalyzer did. Nice. So. So you, there's a, um, wow. I, I find it, I find it really powerful that like laughter without pain was that big of a motivator for you, which also felt like you mentioned fellowship and just like that human connection piece. Right. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't have done it without, you know, people around me, fellows, um, traveling the same road that tried to, you know, live a life where, partying was their main goal yeah and even being drunk at work and things like that um drunk driving with kids i didn't have any kids at the time so some people had done that and they felt this terrible terrible guilt about that yeah i imagine and um you know getting their kids taken away and just a lot of you know stories yet we had train wrecks of our lives and we were laughing that was like crazy to me how can we laugh at our stories like hey yeah, I had a weapon. I was on top of a building. And you know what? The battalion commander was pretty offended. <laughs> yeah. And uh, telling those stories and, and being like, oh, my God, you know, maybe it's best you're not in the military anymore. And things of like that, just sarcastic remarks, remarks and keeping things. You would keeping it light and laughing at the train wrecks we had made of our lives and looking and reflecting at where we are now. Wow. So what? in that process with the people who, and when you say people didn't make it, I imagine you mean they just returned to their old ways or right, they actually right. died. Or well, no. some of them did. Really? So one of them was 27 years old and was driving a motorcycle. We're not a hundred percent sure how inebriated or, or drunk or sober he was. Potentially he drove, he drove into the back of a van and we lost him. Wow. We lost him, you know, quite early back into, you know, his recovery he and that was one of your, like, one of the people you're working with. Yeah, well, it was a friend of ours. And, um, you know, my friend, the one that had the breathalyzer in his car, actually stood up and talked at his funeral and just said, you know, this is, uh, this is really sad. This is really sad. And the thing that I was thinking at the same time is, like, you know, sometimes without us wanting to, without us you know, with us crying and, and having broken hearts, we have to step over some of the dead bodies on this path. Wow. Because That's the bottom is death. The bottom of this disease, the alcoholism, the addiction, and everything that comes in between, everything that started the process, the mental illness, the trauma. There was so many women that had experienced sexual trauma just like me in, in those groups, and that's one of the reasons they sought that escape. And so many people had been through abuse and so many people had been through, had, you know, coupled with mental illness, which they call dual diagnosis where you have mental illness 
and addiction or alcoholism. What do you see as the difference between the people who were able to recover and the people who weren't? I see the ability um, to just not want to die as much as seeing that this is a deadly disease. Not wanting to die and staying in the middle of the herd. Not getting picked off, you know, by king alcohol on the edges and the fringes of the group. Mm. Staying in the middle of the herd, you know, showing up early, staying late to the meetings, having the the meetings after the meetings where you talk to your, you know, your fellows or your spiritual mentor or things like that. So the, I mean, this disease is so great. It's so impactful. It's so consuming that it's like you have to work to, as hard, if not harder than that disease is working on you. Right. Right. Like I, if I, you know, I found a way to get to the liquor store right before it closed, like, am I going to also find a way to get to a meeting right before, you know, it's ending, even though I'm late. Like I have to work just as hard for my recovery as I worked hard getting the booze and the drugs in my system. Yeah. So it's gotta be, it's gotta be, you know, double or, you know, I'm in for, you know, that, that pain all over again. And that, and that will to live coupled with that more than the will to die. And believing that it's death. If I, if I continue on this road or jail or institution or, you know, and then it's death by, it's delayed suicide, you know, death by pain and suffering for many years. Yeah. So either way I'm looking at death cause we don't want to, none of us make it out of here. Right. So, um, <laughs> yeah. it's just how early you want to go. <laughs> right. How early do you want to go? And what does so. that look like and how, how do you feel when you go? Right. It could be in despair and totally lonely with the bottle in your hand. Wow. Yeah. I'm just so curious about that. Like, will to live and what that means and how some people have it and some people don't in these experiences. Yeah. I think some of it's arrogance and just cockiness and looking at like, this isn't gonna, this doesn't have me, you know, this doesn't have me. Like I'm above it. I, I, I can handle it. You know, I can, I can control it this time. This time will be different. And I know I don't believe, you know, to drink is to die. Yeah. No, I don't believe to drug is to die. You know, does that, you know, I hear in like 12 step programs, they talk about surrendering. They talk about seeking a higher power. Mm-hmm. Is that, does that surrendering come in to that? Like does, does that, is that a part of the process to like get over that cockiness or arrogance? Cause yeah. I imagine that cockiness and arrogance is a good defense. It's like, or at least you think it's a good defense. Like I'm in control. This won't get me. But at right. some point do you just have to be like, this is way bigger than me. Right. Not only that will to live, but that, that feeling that, you know, I'm going to wave the white flag because this, this has me to the point where I cannot function and I'm looking at, I'm looking at the alternatives and I'm thinking, well, really it's not that bad out there. It's not, these alternatives really aren't that bad, you know, until these people go back out and they can't get sober again and they end up running into a car. Yeah. And so... Man, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. That's, um, so how would you say your experiences have given you a unique perspective on this topic of mental illness, of addiction, um, and uh, just trauma, your trifecta? Well, I think, 
not only did I get sober, but six years into sobriety, um, I was mar- I ended up marrying that guy with the breathalyzer. We you be- did? We became best friends. What a friends. twist in the story. Yeah, we became best friends, and little did I know we'd end up dating, um, you know, past the time we had become best friends, and to the point where my spiritual mentor was like, why aren't y'all dating? <laughs> and he was like, well, I don't know. We should, and... <laughs> That's, that happened. So we had, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We've, we've had 12 years together. So. Wow. So when did you meet? What year was that? Uh, 2007. Okay. So, um, so actually 11 years together. So I'd have to say 11 years. So 2008, we started dating and, um, we had a baby and we named her Trinity and, um, she was nine months old and I was ha- having not only postpartum depression for a while, but I started having some sort of psychosis where, you know, I was seeing flashes of light. I was hearing things. I was clearing different rooms, like okay. going and going to the room, looking, looking behind the shower curtain, looking outside, like acting totally paranoid, like I was on something. And I said to, I said to my husband, I said, look, I, I think I need help. I think I need help because I think I'm, I think I'm going crazy. Yeah. And I was on medication. I was seeing a psychiatrist. I had my spiritual mentor. And you had all your resources. All my resources. Built and, up. and like I said, recovery had just really begun. Six years into it, I, I had to go to an inpatient facility at the Veterans Hospital. Yeah. A place for um, people who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's what I got diagnosed with. Oh. I wasn't being treated. I was the being PTSD treated for. PTSD comes way later. Yeah. It, it can resurface 10 years later. Wow. And so the thing that tipped the scales towards that was the postpartum. And I was on medication for bipolar. I was on medication for anxiety. And because they had found out I had that when I was around 17. They said depression. But when I had a mental breakdown a couple of years prior, I went started seeing a psychiatrist. And then I went inpatient six years sober. And I was like, what? I had done all this personal development work. What else needs to be done? Right. And like I said, it had just begun. That's crazy to have gone through that whole journey of fighting and getting sober and beating addiction. And then all of a sudden you're just like, you have a daughter and then well, bam, you're just hit with something else. Yeah, they did. They did CT scans just to make sure. And what it was is the paranoia and the bipolar, um, just kind of came together and, you know, were making a mess of me Mm. and I knew something was off. And what's so great is I actually said to the therapist, I said, I think I'm crazy. What if I'm schizophrenic? And she said, the difference between you and people that are crazy is they don't think they're crazy and you think you're crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So you're helping yourself. Yeah. And I, and since I think I'm crazy, instead of swearing that there people are watching me, I know that people aren't actually watching me. I'm just paranoid Mm. and it was ruling my life. Wow. To the point where I was having anxiety attacks. I could take care of my daughter, but when it came to taking care of myself, I was such the back burner. I wasn't at the forefront of my mind. So I took care of my daughter 
And so did my husband. We, we worked together very well as, you know, equally shared parenting and he was working and I was working a part-time job from home. And, uh, I think the isolation of that was also getting to me. Wow. So like, it's one thing for me as like a 27 year old to be like, I need to take care of myself. Right. But like you're responsible for another human being. So how do you develop that skill of taking care of yourself alongside taking care of another human being? Well, you know, the baby gets a bath before I do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she gets fed before I do. Right. Um, she gets entertained before, you know, it's bedtime and I finally get to sit down on the couch and take a breath. Mm-hmm. And now I have two. So, so it's, it's, it's double, it's double, it's a double whammy. Um, my daughter, my first daughter is six and I have an almost two year old at home as well. So it's, it's interesting to go from completely looking out for myself and so selfish and self-centered mm-hmm. to going impatient when she's nine months old, my, for our first one and getting all these more tools. Cause like you said, there was a team there's always a team. There has to be a team. There has to be a team. And there was a team of providers in that inpatient facility was there for about a month, came out and in complete, complete, um, difference because I was sober. I had a higher power. I had the support when I got out mm-hmm. and I also had these new tools, uh, therapeutic tools to get through situations. And I started going to outpatient groups as well. So I had group therapy on top of it. So I wasn't about that, that scary life anymore. I, I decided it was time to recover on a whole new level, face some stuff that, that was yet to be determined, discovered and, you know, dealt with. So then you, you, you experience this, which this PTSD and you get, you acquire these resources and you're working to take care of yourself and this, you're working with this team and that at that moment, that's the trifecta, right? Right, right. You have hit the trifecta at this point. I have had to face everything and, um, face it all, you know, maybe gradually. And then all of a sudden at once, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I had to continue going to my support groups and going to support groups that also, you know, other people had had to take medication there too. And were dual diagnosis, you know, found a meeting like that. Yeah. Talked to my psychiatrist, you know, told him one day, if, if you don't give this figured out, I'm going to drink. I'm going to wow. drink and I'm going to lose my, I'm going to lose my sobriety. While wow, you have your daughter. No, this was a little earlier. Oh, okay. I had the first mental breakdown. So okay. I had, I had two during sobriety. Okay. Sorry about that. I jumped around. No, that's okay. And that's what I had faced when I had my daughter as well. I had that option. I, I always had that option, but I didn't, I wanted to take that option off the table, but it's always there. Yeah. Cause you knew it for so long. So I stay vigilant. Mm-hmm. I stay vigilant. Um, I stay on top of it. I stay connected with spiritual intuitive thoughts from my higher power and meditation. What is your spirituality? If you don't mind me. Well, I like to call myself a Christ follower. Okay. Sometimes you cannot see Christ through the Christians. 
<laughs> the judgment and right. the things like that. And sometimes God is not in a box in the church. Sometimes God is in the wild and, you know, free and like on hikes and, mm-hmm. you know, that's how I, you know, find God grounding myself with nature. And, you know, went to churches for a long time, different churches at different points in time, you know, got baptized when I was young in a Baptist church. And I, you know, I, I believe that I believe Jesus was here. I believe Buddha was here. I believe all sorts of stuff. I'm an open-minded Christ follower, Mm. basically. Yeah. And so as, you know, as like, let's zoom out for a minute, right? So you're, you've had this all, all of these experiences you we've talked about the change you're trying to make and, you know, being a role model and connecting as people have connected with you before mm-hmm. in this world, I think addiction is a huge issue. I mm-hmm. think everybody across the aisles could agree how I mean the opioid epidemic, all of this and outside of what we've already talked about, what do you see as like solutions to these, these issues? Well, you know, the, the things that I have seen and the research that I have, you know, heard of and seen others do and looked at myself is that the war on drugs, the drugs are winning, obviously. Right. So what do we, what do we do with that other than, you know, we're not going to, there are, we did a presentation. I actually went to school and achieved my bachelor's and everything like that, which was great. Okay. And it wasn't possible unless I was sober and also in recovery from mental illness. And we did a study on these clinics that actually give out the methadone and give out actually controlled doses of the opioids Yeah. to try to taper these people off. And then um, we did a presentation on, on how some people, especially in Europe, are allowing people to, to inject in these clinics. It's like the safe needle initiative. This, that doing. Yes, yes. And um, I don't know th- right now the success rates, but I knew then that it was actually helping people because mm. they felt that support. They weren't isolated so much. They had interdependence rather than drug dependence. Yeah. Right. So it's a great phrase. So I believed that, you know, that was, that was maybe a step in the right direction. Maybe not saying, okay, you, now you're going to detox and you're going to die, but let's get you off this as soon as possible. And you need support. Yeah. So I think the, all the different initiatives where people are, people are, um, you know, there's some people in these support groups that go and talk to nurses. There's some nurses that come into the support groups so they can understand, addiction and there's, you know, mental health professionals that are going out there doing their best and, you know, they're on the front lines themselves. Yeah. So I think these groups that people start and, you know, I want to help people with the trifecta by starting some study groups myself Mm. with this book and this workbook has, because I want people to know that if they've suffered with all three, they're not alone. Yeah. Sounds like you're, you're really fighting against stigma and really like embracing people rather than shaming them for what they've done. Right. Right. And so, yeah, totally. And so is that what you see missing 
like from the cultural narrative or from like what's happening in the world in regards to addiction and the trifecta. Yeah. I really see, you know, what I see is the problem is trying to act normal when you don't feel normal. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to be able to know you need support and you're on the verge of suicide if you don't ask for help. Yeah. So there was somebody that was going to uh, recently a support group and she even said like, nobody called me, nobody called me and I almost killed myself. And I was thinking to myself, nobody knew that everybody saw you at meetings and thought you were fine. Right. What about letting people in opening, you know, opening the doors of your heart and letting people in instead of acting normal yeah. and trying to put this facade on and say, I'm this many years sober well, I should be here and I'm happy when really I'm, I'm wanting to die. Suffering from untreated alcoholism in the, in the support groups themselves. Mm. Suffering in a way that keeps them isolated rather than working on the process of recovery and asking for help. Yeah, which is interesting because they're in a support group. So you would imagine that would be the space to seek help and constantly be vulnerable. Right. But then there's this sense of pride that comes in. Once you become sober. Yeah. And there's a sense of pride in the fact that they are sober and they are hiding something. Like it's something they don't want anybody to find out is that they're still suffering. Yeah. They'd rather be like, I overcame already. Right. Because there's so many overcomers. Yeah. So it's it's interesting to go from, you know, wanting to be the bit, biggest, baddest drinker to wanting to be the biggest, baddest sober person. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. It's an ego and pride thing. Yeah, which we're all fallible to. Mm, definitely. And I have been there. I have been, you know, missed support group. And, you know, I have done that before and, and it's humbled me. Really? I have been humbled. Like I had seven months sober and I said, I got this thing. I got this thing. Yeah. And that was right before I had the biggest, one of the biggest tests. You know, I had a mental breakdown a little bit later um, and then got, got into getting a help from a psychiatrist. So saying I got this usually is the precursor for, n I don't have this at <laughs> yeah. all. Yeah. yeah. That also just adds a lot of nuance into the recovery process. Like it's just, I mean, we were talking about this on an episode previously, but it, and you mentioned it just now, but like the vigilance that sounds like it's required and the mm -hmm. constant humility to be able to overcome these things. Yeah. Seeking humility rather than see, than not knowing you need to be humbled. Yeah. And seeking like it as a character. Instead of waiting for right. an outside thing to humble you. Right. Constantly seeking humility. Seeking it character development and seeking it as a part of that character development and saying like, look, I know I still have definitely some errors in thinking, distorted thinking. Yeah. I have not cured. Right. Like that girl who thought she should act a certain way because she has so many years of sobriety. Do you no always have to say you're not cured then constantly? Uh, well, people say they're recovered or they say they're recovering either way. Yeah. They're still going to the groups. Yeah. So I kind of see it as one of those things that's as long as I'm, you know, I, I have, thank God I've had to, I've gotten to a point where I have ceased fighting the, you know, dis-ease of alcoholism, but I stay in recovery because that's what works. So 
you know, cured or not, labels or not, I'm not going to, I'm not willing to test that theory. Yeah. It's like even beyond, like once you feel like you're at the place you need to be, it's like the work doesn't stop. Right. And what do you, what are the advantages of continuing to work even when you feel like you're past it? Is it just a preventative measure or are you constantly still growing through that process? Yeah. I, I think there's no status quo. We're definitely going forward or we're going backwards and I don't want to regress anymore. And, and I did that for a long time. So I think it's all about personal growth and development. And some people can get addicted to that. To the personal growth. Oh yeah. yeah I feel like I've been there. Yeah. Really? Totally. Yeah. What have you found? Um, I think I was, I think for personal growth, I think I was so addicted to like leveling up, if you will. Like Mm. I need to be, this is a a fault of mine. I want to be better at this. I need to grow in this way that I lacked a sense of self-acceptance and I lacked a sense of like just accepting who I was and for my flaws and Mm. my weaknesses. And I was so pressuring myself. I need to be better. It was like a perfect, it was like personal growth perfectionism or Mm. spiritual perfectionism, which you like, I feel it can be problematic in its own way. Definitely. Definitely. There's a way to get addicted to anything, even if it's like people getting addicted to exercise or, yeah, you know, Sometimes I get addicted to soul stories. I'm like, I need to just oh, like take a step back. I love it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, let, let, as we, as we start to wrap up over the next few minutes, um, what do you advocate for? Like what, what do you want to see change in this world? Mm. Like on a big picture in terms of these topics? Well, I love the me too mo- movement. And they're, you know, the people wearing black in solidarity looking at, you know, how there has been like this uh, rape culture, they call it, or, um, you know, harassment on a whole nother level. Totally. And also the behind closed doors and it used to be more prevalent and there was women's lib and then the feminist movement, things like that. But now I think there, it's still people are still suffering from this trauma, you know, however, from rape to, you know, just being grabbed by the ass and things like that. Yeah. So I think it's, I think overall it's actually, you know, there was a Ted talk that was talking about how we're getting less violent because everybody has a, has a camera on their phone and somebody's going to record it (laughs) and you're going to get caught and you're going to get in trouble. Yeah. So I think overall we're not living in a place where, you know, we're, fa- we're facing plagues anymore. You right. know, we're living in a, in a place where we're facing, you know, addictions because we're isolated because we're all on our phones. Yeah. Isolation's huge mm-hmm. now. No, no longer interdependent on each other, you know, hand in hand, more so, you know, phone, phone to face, Right. <laughs> you know, right. And I think, um, out of that, there has been all these shootings and everything going on at the schools. It's just terrifying as a parent. Yeah. Um, I imagine. I think it's not being able to get their aggression out like as young boys and you know, that, uh, toxic masculinity they talk about and the the toxic femininity 
There is that too, acting like the victim, completely manipulating, mm. you know, and I've, I've been there. I've done that. Interesting. Yeah. And so how do you see us moving forward? Cause you talk about the me too movement and you know, how, how, like how do we keep, how do we keep going forward? I think, I think the more people are exposing other people that, that, and also having some level of what I talk about in the book is a level of forgiveness, not only for self, but not drinking the poison anymore, expecting somebody else to die. Mm. You know, it's killing me to, to have this unforgiveness and bitterness on the inside of my heart. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think there will be more support groups sprouting up around and uh, around these things. And I think like there's a, a group here in Denver called wings. Okay. And that's a, that's a sexual, uh, abuse recovery. And then there's, there's the blue bench and that's also oh, yeah, blue uh, bench. sexual abuse recovery. And, uh, NAMI national Alliance of mental illness. And that's, that's a, that's a support group I've been to as well. And, um, it sounds like I'm addicted to support group. <laughs> <laughs> it's like fight club. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I've gone to different ones at different times and stayed with the sobriety one as much as possible just to stay in a point where I have reached neutrality with addiction yeah. And I have reached neutrality with my mental illness and I have reached forgiveness. Yeah. Thank you. Neutrality is really, that's difficult to get to for anything. Yeah. Um, so what, what would you say your central, you hit on this a little bit, but like, what would you say your central message is? Like, what do you want people to take out of this, out of this episode? I'd say that, and no matter how far down the scale you've gone, there's always a way to look up and there's always hope. People do care regardless of what, what you may think, what, you know, I personally think in, in times of distress is nobody gets me. I'm alone. I'm alone in this world and total despair, total fear. And I think that there is hope and, and finding that hope, you know, the first the first step I think is that honesty, the gut level honesty that I need help. And the second is just discovering there's hope mm. and there's people, uh, there's other people like me, you know, another drug addict helping another drug addict out of the ditch. Yeah. So I think the more people that can ex tell about their experience, the better, which is why I'm trying to fight against stigma, as you said, and, and see that show that somebody that suffered from all of these things can recover and we don't have to be a statistic. So that's my message. My primary message is, you know, we are not just the numbers. We are people that are hurting and trying to escape and there is hope and people do care. Mm, it's a powerful message. Where can, where can people find you, uh, promote yourself a little bit? The book's coming out, like how do you want people to contact you? Oh, I'd love that. Yeah. Um, becoming a seeker will be out. If not in the fall, then, then the winter of this year, becoming a seeker.com just basically is a coming soon page. We'll see how it, we'll see how it ends up once the book comes out. And I have my website, patriciaalley.com. That's a L L E Y patriciaalley.com. And I can be, be reached at patriciaalleycoaching at gmail.com as well. 
Awesome. And you can, anyone can reach out to soul stories and I can get you in contact with Patricia as well. Thank you. Um, thank you for being a role model in our community. Thank you for uh, like overcoming addiction and trauma and mental illness and just helping us move forward as a society by just being the example you want to see in the world. Mm, that's good. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. Awesome. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Soul Stories podcast. Having these conversations is super important to me as a person and the backbone behind why we do everything at Soul Stories. I would be extremely grateful if you were to leave a review at iTunes and share this episode with someone you care about. It helps us build the movement. Until next time, this is Danny signing off.